Well, I would encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Philippians chapter 4. We're in Philippians chapter 4, and this morning we're going to be in verses 4 and 5. Let me begin this morning by reading these verses for us. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Years ago, there was a conference at a Presbyterian church in Omaha. And as the people came into this church at this conference, they were each given a balloon that was filled with helium. They were then told that they were to release the balloon at some point during the service when they felt like expressing joy in their hearts. At any point during the service, just release the balloon, it'll go up. Since they were Presbyterians, they weren't free to say hallelujah or praise the Lord. (laughs) And so instead, they would represent their joy and their praise by releasing this balloon. All throughout the service, brightly colored balloons ascended up to the ceiling, bouncing off the ceiling of the church. But when the service was over, there was still about a third of the balloons that were never released. Don't get any ideas. We're not going to do that here at Faith Bible Church. We'll leave that to the Presbyterians. (laughs) But the point of this story is that there are Christians who lack joy in their lives. They wouldn't release the balloon because there was no point in rejoicing. There was no joy in them. There are Christians who just live in misery and depression and are downtrodden all the time. They just grumble and complain all the time, which is exactly what Paul said back in chapter 2 and verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why does Paul have to command the church to do that? Because the church does it. They lack joy. And the reason why many Christians lack joy is because they don't understand the command to rejoice. In fact, look at verse 4 again and notice what Paul says there. Paul says twice here that the church at Philippi, these believers are to rejoice. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, in case you didn't get it, rejoice. Rejoice. And as we already know, joy is a, a major theme of this letter of Philippians, right? It's a major theme. In fact, this is not the first time that Paul has commanded the church to rejoice. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 18. Notice what Paul says there. In chapter 2 and verse 18, he says, You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Paul was speaking in this context about being a living sacrifice unto the Lord and rejoicing in whatever circumstance the Lord had him in. And he wanted the church at Philippi to rejoice with him. 
He was a joy-filled man, and he says, now I urge you, church, I'm commanding you to rejoice with me. He wasn't grumbling. He wasn't complaining. In fact, he had a lot to grumble and complain about being in prison, right? But he didn't do that. He wasn't depressed because of the circumstances in his life not going the way he wanted them to go. In fact, things weren't going well for Paul at all from a a human perspective, being in prison. But it was exactly where God wanted him to be. Paul was in prison not because of the Romans. Paul was in prison because that was the place in which God wanted him to be. And he knew that. And so he could rejoice. Then in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul said, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Again, this is a command to rejoice. It's something that we as believers are commanded to do by God. Therefore, when we don't have joy, when we are not rejoicing, what is that called? It's called sin. It's called sin. God commands us to rejoice. It's like not loving someone. We don't love them. What's that called? It's called sin. Because we're commanded to do what? To love our neighbor as ourselves. It's a command from God. And so is being joyful. It's a command that is given to us by God. And we as believers are to be those who are characterized by a life of joy. In fact, think about Paul in this situation. He knew that he could be facing death. He knew that he could die there in prison. In fact, in chapter 1 and verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I I know I could die here, but to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I don't know whether I want to stay here and be with you guys or whether I want to die and go to be with Christ. But I know it's a possibility. He knows very well that his life could end in death there in prison in Rome. And yet, he is still able to have joy in his life. In fact, let me show you an example of this in Paul's life where he was in a terrible situation and yet still had joy. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul has come to Philippi in Acts chapter 16. He's preached the gospel at the women's prayer meeting that's there. They were all saved. And the church began. The church began from a women's prayer meeting there in Philippi. Paul then continues to preach the gospel in Philippi along with Silas who was with him. But they were eventually thrown in prison for supposedly upsetting the city. And notice what it says in Acts 16 and verse 22. 
It says, the crowd rose up together against them. It's Paul and Silas. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet and the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying. Notice this in verse 25. They were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. These guys were just beaten with rods, thrown into the inner prison, and shackled there in the inner prison. And what do they do? Paul and Silas, they begin to pray and sing hymns of praise unto God. Now that's not something that most people would do, right? Get beaten, thrown into prison, and start singing hymns of praise? Most people wouldn't do that. And we might ask, how were these men able to have such joy in the midst of these circumstances? How could these men, after being beaten, thrown into the prison, and shackled there, how could they still have joy and pray to God and sing out in praises unto Him? How were they able to do that? Well, I'll tell you in just a minute. But before I tell you, turn back to Philippians chapter 4. Turn back to Philippians 4. And let me quickly remind you of what Paul's been talking about so far in this chapter. If you remember in Philippians 4.1, Paul commands the church and he says, In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And remember, we asked the question, in what way? You tell us, in this way, stand firm in the Lord. Okay, in what way? Well, in this way, it looks back not only to verses 17 through 21 in chapter 3, but also to the verses that follow after verse 1. In this way. In this way, you are to stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And last week, we looked at Paul's urging of Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Syzygus was commanded to help these women to be united so that the church could stand united. And so part of standing firm in the Lord is being united in the Lord. In this way, you stand firm in the Lord when you are united together in the Lord. When you're living in harmony in the Lord. And now, this morning, we're going to see here in verses 4 and 5 that there are two more ways in which the church is to stand firm in the Lord. Not only do we stand firm in the Lord by living in harmony in the Lord, but two more ways in which we stand firm in the Lord. So, as we look at these two verses, these two more ways in which we stand firm in the Lord, these two ways are this. First, be joyful in the Lord. We see this in verse 4. Be joyful in the Lord. And then second, be gentle with all men. We see this in verse 5. 
We're commanded to be joyful in the Lord and be gentle with all men. Those are going to be our two points here this morning. So let's look at our first point here. Be joyful in the Lord. As we stand firm in the Lord, one of the ways how we do that is by being joyful in the Lord. Look again at what Paul says there in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Both of those words rejoice there are imperatives in the Greek. That is, they are commands. Both of those words are commands to us. And there are present tense imperatives, which means that this is to be the ongoing habitual pattern of the Christian life. We are to always be living joyfully. Always rejoicing in the Lord. And as he writes this to the whole church, commanding all of them to rejoice, it's something that begins where? With each individual. In our own individual hearts. That's where that rejoicing collectively together as a church, it begins, it begins when each one of us personally are rejoicing in our own hearts. In the Lord. Now, if this is a command to rejoice always, then can we just walk up to someone and tell them, you must rejoice. And they have to obey that? As if they can just turn this joy on and off? Oh, it doesn't look like you're having joy. Rejoice. Oh, okay. Is that what Paul means here? I mean, we would look at this and we would say, okay, there's a command that is given to rejoice. How can Paul just tell someone to rejoice and then they just have joy? Well, we must remember that joy is not dependent upon our circumstances, right? Joy is not something that's dependent upon our circumstances. Happiness is. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances that you're in. People are happy when they go to Disneyland. They're very happy because the circumstances around them allow them to forget about life and just have fun. Now, even at the park in Disneyland, they might get into a circumstance in which they have to wait in a long line and they're no longer happy, right? <laughs> but then they get to the front of the line. Oh, I'm about to get on this ride, so guess what I can do? Be happy now. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances that you're in. But that is not what joy is. In fact, Paul was far from anything like Disneyland, being in prison. And yet he was still able to have joy. How was he able to do that? Well, the key is found in these three words. Notice them there in verse 4. These three words, in the Lord. That's the key, in the Lord. The reason why believers are able to rejoice always is because our joy is found in the Lord. It's not found in our circumstances in life. Our joy is found in the Lord. It's a joy that's not dependent upon circumstances. But it's a joy that comes from outside of us. It's found outside of our circumstances. Outside of the sphere in which we're in. It's a joy that is anchored. It's a joy that is grounded. It's a joy that is firm. 
And it's a joy that we have because of what we know to be true about the Lord. Now, what is it that we know about the Lord that would cause us to rejoice? Let me give you four of them. Four truths about our Lord that should cause us to rejoice. Again, not dependent upon our own circumstances, but something outside of us, right? Let me give you these four truths about our Lord that should cause us to rejoice. Truth number one, He is sovereign. He is sovereign. Isn't it good to know that as we look around at our world today, that our God is sovereign? Our God is sovereign. Listen to Psalm 115 and verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Or Psalm 93 and verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Or Jeremiah's prayer in Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah knows that truth about God. God, there is nothing that is too difficult for you. You see, we need those reminders in our lives. We need those verses to be set in our hearts. We need those truths to be the anchor of our souls. God is sovereign. Nothing is too difficult for Him. He reigns and He does whatever He pleases. That's our God. And in light of this great truth about our God, what should our hearts do? Rejoice. Rejoice. We can rejoice because of who our God is. One Dutch theologian said this, he said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who, has, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Mine. Christ is sovereign over all, and He cries out over all, It is Mine. I am in charge. I am the sovereign one. So what would, should we do? Rejoice. Our God is sovereign. He's in control of it all. There's nothing that is too difficult for Him. He is the sovereign over all the universe. And because we are in the Lord, the Lord who is sovereign over all, our hearts should respond with joy rejoicing let me give you a second truth truth number two he is immutable he's not only sovereign but he is immutable that is he is unchanging our god is unchanging listen to psalm 102 and verse 25 of old you founded the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands even they will perish but you endure and all of them will wear out like a garment like clothing You will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not come to an end. 
Or Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Even though you and I change and our circumstances change, listen church, our God never changes. He never changes. He is from all of eternity, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. A.W. Pink said, However unstable I may be, however fickle my friends may prove, God changes not. Your friends will let you down. Your friends are going to come and they're going to go. Your friends are going to bring you happiness and sadness. But he says, God changes not. If he varied as we do, if he willed one thing today and another tomorrow, if he were controlled by impulse, who could confide in him? Pink goes on and he says this, But all praise to his glorious name. He is ever the same. His purpose is fixed. His will is stable. His word is sure. He's an unchanging God. Our God does not change. And because our God does not change and we are in Him, that should cause our hearts to rejoice. To rejoice. He's the same God of yesterday. The same God today and the same God forever. He does not change. And no matter what the circumstances are around me that are changing, my God never changes. He doesn't change. And for that, my heart can sing praise and rejoice, right? We can rejoice in that. Let me give you a third truth. Truth number three, not only is he sovereign and immutable, but number three, he is my savior. He is my Savior. If you are in the Lord, then God is your Savior. Our God is our Savior. And you know Him to be a saving God. In fact, Isaiah 43.11 says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. None. He's the Savior. Jude says in Jude 25, To the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude is just ringing out in praise and glory and majesty for who our God is. That He is a Savior. A Savior of sinners like us. All glory and majesty belongs to our God. In fact, Mary even rejoiced over this fact in Luke 1.47 when she says, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Her heart was filled with joy because she knew that she was pregnant with the Messiah. The Savior who was to come to save the world from their sins. And what does she do in knowing that and understanding that? It causes her heart to rejoice. To rejoice. 
And Luke 10, after the 70 came back with joy because the demons were subjected to them in Christ's name, that is, the 70 were sent out and they were given authority over the demons, over the spirit world, and they were commanding demons to come out of people, and they came back to Jesus and they were filled with such great joy. Wow, even the demons listened to us because we commanded in your name, Jesus. And they were filled with great joy because of the power and the authority that they had that Jesus had given to them. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke 10, 20. Jesus told them, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. That's what should bring us great joy. That our names are written in the book of life. In fact, isn't that what, what, what Paul just told the Philippians back in verse 3? Where, where he talks about Yodia and Syntyche and Syzygist, his true companion, and, and Clement and the other fellow workers. Notice at the end of verse 3 he says, whose names are in the book of life. Your names are written there. Listen, church, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And no one can come and erase it. It won't ever be erased. Because God put it there. Because He saved you. He's a saving God. And Jesus says, that is what should cause your heart to rejoice. <laughs> Don't rejoice over the power over the demons. No, 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 no. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That you're saved by a God who is a Savior. And that should cause our hearts to rejoice as well, knowing that our names are written in heaven. And so not only is our Lord sovereign and immutable and our Savior, but truth number four, He is also coming again. He is coming again. Listen, when we look around us and see all of the wickedness that is going on around us, just turn on the news, church. Or don't. You'll be better for it. <laughs> but you could turn on the news and you just see the wickedness that is going on all around us. And yet we can be confident that our God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is coming again and He will make all things right. He's going to make it all right. Don't worry, church. We don't have to make it right. He is going to. Our job is just to go and make disciples, to go out and preach the gospel. Jesus is going to come again, and he's going to make it all right. He's going to judge all of the wicked, and they're going to get exactly what they deserve. We don't have to worry about that. Jesus is coming again, and he's going to take care of all of it. And not only will he do that, but he'll also take us home to be with him. And if that doesn't cause your heart to rejoice, I don't know what else does. <laughs> because the very fact that our God, that Jesus is going to come again and He's going to take us home to be with Him forever, oh, that should cause our hearts to rejoice. <laughs> our hearts should burst forth in joy knowing that that is our future. 
Remember, that's what Paul wanted the Philippians to be reminded of. Back in chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, For our citizenship is not, on this, not in this world, not on this planet. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. He has all power in heaven and on earth and he's going to come back this next time as the judge not as a savior but as the judge and he's going to make everything right and all of those who are in him who are in the lord who believe in him all of those will be with him forever that's glorious truth that should cause our hearts to burst forth Enjoy. In 1719, Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. We sing that every Christmas, looking back to the first coming of Christ. But we can also sing, Joy to the Lord, joy to the world, the Lord will come. Because the truth that He could come at any moment ought to cause our hearts to burst out in joy. Right? In fact, isn't that what we sang here this morning? Rejoice, the Lord is King. In that first hymn that we sung, the fourth stanza there, Rejoice in glorious hope, for Christ the Judge shall come and take His servants up to their eternal home. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. Rejoice, church. Christ is coming again. And He'll come to take us home to be with Him. And so those are four truths that are anchors for our souls and ought to cause our hearts to rejoice. You see, if your joy is tied to whether or not you're having a good or bad day, your joy will be all over the place, right? Do you always have good days? No. Or if your joy is tied to the circumstances in your life and whether or not things are going well for you, those things change all the time, right? You can be having a great day and then get a phone call or an email from someone about something that you didn't like or want to hear and ruin your day, right? And if your joy is tied to that, well, there goes your joy. Or if your joy is tied to the news and what's going on in politics or the White House. If your joy is tied to your money or the stock market. Well, your joy looks like it's about to go down real fast. <laughs> but if your joy is anchored in Christ and who he is, the great truths about our God, then you can have constant joy in your life no matter what the circumstances are. And then you can obey this command from God who says, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
Always. We always have reason to rejoice, right? In every moment of every day, we can remind ourselves of who our great God is and burst forth in joy. You see, listen to this, church. It is our theology that gives us reason to rejoice. You hear that? It is our theology that gives us reason to rejoice. Without a solid theology, you will waver and you'll be tossed to and fro. If you don't have a solid theology, a solid understanding and a belief in who God is, you'll be tossed to and fro. And you won't be able to stand firm and rejoice. But if you have a rock-solid theology, one that knows the truths about God and who He says He is, it is then that you will be able to rejoice in the Lord always. Listen, church, that is why I am always teaching doctrine. Doctrine is so important for us, church. We must know doctrine. We must understand doctrine. We must be firmly grounded and rooted in our theology, in our doctrine of who God is and what God has done. And if we have that solid foundation, knowing who our God is, then we can obey this command, right? To rejoice in the Lord always. If you're ever persecuted like Paul and Silas were, you can rejoice because you know who our God is. When you're suffering like Paul and Silas were, you can rejoice because you know who our God is. And listen, the reason why Paul and Silas were able to sing hymns in prison is because of their rock-solid theology. Because of what they knew to be true about God. They were in a terrible circumstance. A terrible situation. But they knew, oh, my God doesn't change. And for that, we're going to burst forth. And we're going to sing praises unto our God. Because we know who He is. It was their theology that led them to pray and sing hymns in the middle of the night. Matthew Henry said this, It is our duty and privilege to rejoice in God, to rejoice in Him always, at all times, in all conditions. There is enough, listen to this, there is enough in God to furnish us with matter of joy in the worst circumstances on earth. And rejoicing is so fundamental for the follower of Christ that Paul has to repeat it again. Again, I will say, rejoice. <laughs> if you didn't get it the first time, well, let me tell you again. That's how Christians are to be living their lives, with joy. A second time, Paul gives this command to us. But notice the future tense of what Paul says here. He says, I will say. See that there? Again, I will say, rejoice. That is, Paul will always remind the church to 
rejoice. There was never a time in the life of a believer where Paul would tell them, okay, well, you know, your circumstances are too bad, so hey, don't worry about rejoicing. He would never say that. Never. No, Paul is essentially saying here, if you ever come and ask me what I should do in the midst of a trial or difficult circumstance, I'm going to tell you. Rejoice. You want to come and get wisdom from me in the difficult circumstance that that you're going through? Just be ready. You know what I'm going to tell you? Rejoice. (laughs) Just rejoice. And as we all individually rejoice in the Lord, then collectively we will be a joy-filled church united in our joy in the Lord. Amen? And we'll be able to stand firm in the Lord as we stand united and joyfully. And so we must be joyful in the Lord. Paul continues on then in verse 5 and he gives another command, which leads to our second point, point number two, be gentle with all men. Look at what Paul says there in verse 5. He says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Now, this is a command just as rejoice is a command. And what Paul is saying here is, let this be known. And what is it that is to be known? He says, your gentle spirit. Your gentle spirit. Now, this word in the Greek for gentle is the word epikes. And it's a difficult word to translate. It's not the same word that we looked at last week in Ephesians 4.2 for gentle. Remember when we looked at that last week, that word gentle that's there? It's not the same word. This is a different word, but a word that's not easily translated. In fact, the ESV translates this word as reasonable. That word gentle there, they they translate it as reasonable. The Holman Christian Standard Bible translates it as graciousness. The NIV translates it as gentleness. The Legacy Standard Bible translates it as a considerate spirit. The NASB 97 edition translates it as forbearing spirit, and the King James Version translates it as moderation. Then you get to the Amplified Bible, which says it this way, let your gentle spirit, your graciousness, unselfishness, mercy, tolerance, and patience be known to all people. They just packed it all in there. They basically just try to show the whole meaning of this. Well, we don't really, we're just going to pack it all in there. You see, it's it's a difficult word to translate. But it has to do with being a gracious person. And it has the idea of showing gentleness and graciousness even when you know you are wronged. That's the idea behind this word. That's the concept there. Showing gentleness and graciousness even when you know you are wrong. One commentary defines it this way. A humble, patient steadfastness which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, or maltreatment without hatred or malice. Trusting God in spite of it all. It's the gentleness that Christ showed when he was being mistreated by the Jews and the Roman soldiers. Remember what they did to him? They spit on him. 
They punched him in the face. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They mistreated him. And yet, he continued to show gentleness. Gentleness. And that's the kind of character that is to be displayed. Another commentator speaks of this gentleness as being a person who does not insist on every right of the letter of the law. It's learning to accept less than you think you're due. You're gracious toward others. Either when they owe you something or when they have wronged you in some manner. You're gracious towards them. Another way that we could say this is that we are to be humble. That we're to be humble. Humble people don't demand things for themselves, right? They don't demand things for themselves but they're looking out for the interests of other people. Going back to Philippians 2, right? And notice that this is not something that is to be practiced just among fellow believers, but notice what Paul says there. He says, be gentle to who? To all men. To all men. This means it goes even outside of the church. Not just within the church walls, but even outside. When the world mistreats us or wrongs us in some manner, we're not to retaliate and get back at them, but we're to be gentle and gracious towards them and submit to the mistreatment without hatred or malice towards them. And what do we do through all of that? We entrust ourselves to who? To God. And we act out in a winsome manner. That's what Paul is after here. Another way we could say this is to say what Paul said back in chapter 2 and verse 5. Have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. He was gentle and he was winsome. That's the attitude we're to have. He didn't retaliate and wrong those who wronged him. But he was gracious and gentle. And that's to be our attitude as well. Listen, we're to reach out to the world with the gospel because that is their greatest need, right? And we're to go and preach the gospel to the world. We're to go and tell them about the greatness of our God and who He is. And we're to tell them that they are sinners who have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And then we tell them what Christ has done so that they could be saved from their sin. What God did for them. That Christ came and He lived a perfect life and He died on a cross and was buried and rose again on the third day. And we command them to repent of their sin and believe in Christ. And tell them that if they do that, they have the promise of eternal life. That's the gospel message. That's what we are to preach to the world. And we do all of that with a gracious and gentle heart, a winsome heart, to win them to Christ, speaking the truth in love, never returning evil with evil, but showing humility and patience with them as we desire to win them to the Lord.
Now, all of this encompasses what it means to stand firm in the Lord. This is what it means to stand firm in the Lord. It's in this way. What way is that? We stand united, always rejoicing and full of graciousness for the lost so that they might be one to Christ. Now, notice that last sentence there in verse 5. The Lord is near. It's interesting that Paul says this here. Right? I mean, even reading through this, all of a sudden you just go, let your gentle spirit, okay, there's command, let your gentle spirit be known to all men, the Lord is near. Why does Paul put that there? Why does he put that sentence there? There really is not a connection grammatically, if you were to look at the grammar of this, there's not a connection grammatically as to what was just said previously or what comes after it. Even commentators dispute what Paul is talking about here. Is he urging them to be gentle and gracious and humble with outsiders because Jesus is near? Is he talking about the nearness of Christ's return? As he talked about back up in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3. Is he talking about the nearness of Christ and that Christ is living in us? That nearness, a nearness of space in which Christ said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is he tying it in with verse 6 about not being anxious about anything? What is Paul talking about here? Well, come back in two Sundays and I'll tell you what Paul is talking about here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the joy that we have in Christ because of who you are. You are our great God. You are our glorious Savior. You are sovereign over all and you never change. And Father, we thank you for the promise of Christ who is coming again. That he will come again to take us to be home with you for all of eternity. Lord, help us to be believers who are always rejoicing. Rejoicing in you. Never looking to the circumstances around us, but always keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, the author and redeemer, the Savior of the world. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who doesn't know you, who doesn't know you as their Savior. Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith, that you would remove the scales from their eyes, that you, God, would give them life. And I pray that they would realize and recognize their sin and how their sin has separated them from you, a holy and righteous God, and that they would run to you, begging for mercy, and that, God, you would grant them that mercy and the promise of eternal life. Father, help us to leave from this place here this morning rejoicing in you. And as we rejoice and live our lives for you, may we do it all with a gentle spirit. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.